Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another beautiful day, for life and for health, and for the ability to come and reason together. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will be here in our midst, that you will guide and direct in all that's done, and that the message will be clear tonight, and that our hearts will be open for what you would have us to to know and to take away from tonight's presentation. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to jump right in to the book of Revelation and get started. We're going to look at a woman that we see in Revelation chapter 12, the pure and virtuous woman. Doesn't she look nice? Very simple, but very attractive, beautiful. I think that's really the depiction that we have in Revelation chapter 12. Jeremiah 6.2 says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. Now, when we look in the book of Revelation, a woman is symbolic of, does anybody know? A church. And so if we're going to have a pure woman, an innocent woman, a delicate woman, that probably is representation of a pure church, maybe pure doctrine and that type of thing. And of course, the the inverse of that, we're going to look at that tonight as well. Well, it's just the opposite of everything I just said. Uh, Impure. Uh, And really, it it uses stronger language than that. Here's a, a depiction of the impure woman. And she looks a little bit more conniving. That's maybe not the person that you want to marry your son as much as the first picture. Uh, I don't know. Can we trust her? Now, of course, these are an artist's depiction, but we'll look at the description. And I think these pictures do pretty well based on the description that we have. And so if a pure woman is a pure church, then an apostate or or even a... a, uh, What's that? Impure woman. Yes, would be an apostate system or an impure church. And so in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now there's a fair bit of symbolism there. We're going to try and break it down a little bit, but it's going to be kind of a a quick skip over uh, to some degree just because we have so much to cover. But what are some of these symbols? And we'd have to probably do a little bit more of an exhaustive Bible study to look at these symbols. But many commentators agree on these symbols. Uh, The Son is Jesus, His gospel, His righteousness, how it radiates throughout the New Testament. Okay? So then the moon would be the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that she's standing on. And then the 12 stars would be the 12 disciples which crowned the early years of the New Testament church. There are some that have some variation of that, but this is generally uh, what people <clears throat> perceive all this to be. But then the woman is in labor and is late in labor with Christ. Okay? And that's what we're going to look at a little bit more. Um, but now we're in Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, this is not the pure woman anymore. This is a harlot, right? Again, not the the young woman you want your son to marry. And it sits on many waters. We're going to look at a verse for that, but waters in Revelation and prophecy is symbolic of people, okay, or a populated area. Verse 15, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw, this is the same chapter, just a little bit later, the waters which you saw, Where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So we have it right there. The Bible interprets itself. Um, So going back to verse 2 here. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. Again, this language is, is quite different than the pure and virtuous woman. So here we have a harlot committing fornication with the kings of the earth... Um, And then the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So we have a harlot committing fornication with the kings of the earth, and people are getting drunk on her fornication. Now, if we just say very simply, to drink and to become intoxicated, what does that do to the mind? Clouds it. And the more intoxicated I am, the more my mind is clouded. And the more I, is that right to say, the more I can't reason well? Okay. Um, 
I mean, I don't know if you remember when you had to take that test or when you renewed or whatever, there's all these questions on alcohol. And if you don't study them, you're going to miss it. You think, well, I know everything on the road. And if I need to turn left, right, yield, this and that. But if you don't know the alcohol levels, when it constitutes you being drunk, you're going to lose and miss out on that, that test. So this idea of being drunk means I'm not reasoning clearly. I'm in a stupor. And I, I probably could dig up pretty easily some facts on alcohol and how related that is to so many issues in terms of crime and accidents. I mean, we've heard these before. I think almost half of the accidents on the road, somebody is, is under the influence or something like that. Um, so much so, in fact, is this problem of being intoxicated. Uh, and it's a little bit scary when you stop and think about it. I'm going to become intoxicated, perhaps to the point that I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't exactly know where I'm going to wake up. I'm not going to really know what happened while I was kind of checked out. It's a little scary, isn't it? I think so. Um, when I was a student missionary, one of these little islands called Nukoro, uh, they, the senior class went there, the senior class trip, and I was one of their sponsors. So we got on this cargo ship, and we went over the ocean for about a day and went to this tiny little island, so that it's whole, and which means it's a, a volcano that basically imploded, so you have a lagoon inside and a little um, canal that goes in and out. And there was probably maybe 60, 75 people total that lived on this atoll, A-T-O-L-L. And so they decided that the local drink there is sakau. That's where you take a plant leaf and you grind it up and it looks nice and green and has this real snotty look to it. And then you add a little water and you put it in a tiny little cup and you put it back and you squint your eyes like this and you... And if you ask how come they squint their eyes, it's because it tastes terrible. But that's how desperate they are to get intoxicated, right? <clears throat> and so they drink this stuff called sakau, and then they get drunk, and they do all kinds of things. Of course, in that part of the world, everybody has a machete, so that gets a little bit sketchy. Uh, if, if you really are angry at somebody, you might boil papayas and, and throw them at somebody. Can you imagine getting hit by a, a hot papaya and the burns that that would leave? And it's just a mess. It's a complete mess. So on this small island of Nukoro, they saw what alcohol was doing to their small society. And they said, we don't have to put up with this. And so they didn't. They made a law and they banned all alcoholic beverages on their little island. And so now nobody is getting drunk. And they say it solved all kinds of problems that we used to have. Okay. <clears throat> I need to keep moving here. But this idea of drunkenness. But first, let's look, what is fornication? Well, it's an illicit union, okay? That's what fornication is. It's the fallen church system uh, united with the state. So when you have church and state uniting, uh, this is the idea of committing fornication. In the true church system, the church is united with Jesus Christ, not the state, right? Jesus is the source of all true power. We don't need the state to come along and strong arm people right? I mean, that's when things get really kind of twisted. Um, it, and that's why in this country, we're set up on this idea. And of course, those, those rights are being violated more and more all the time. But the idea of separation of church and state is you can't mandate what I'm going to believe or how I'm going to exercise my convictions and all those kinds of things. As soon as we start mandating those things, that can be a problem real quick. Um, so... <clears throat> Revelation 17, 3, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, the harlot woman of Revelation 17 represents a false system of worship, false system of worship. Um, and the beast upon which she rides represents the state. Does that make sense? We've seen all the way down through in Daniel and, and even in Revelation every time, but especially in Daniel, every time we have a beast, it's repre it represents a kingdom or a power, right? And so here you have this woman riding this beast. Uh, Bible commentary here, <clears throat> Fawcett and Brown, state and church are precious gifts of God, but the state being desecrated becomes beast-like. The church apostatizing becomes the harlot. 
So we have a church that is apostatizing, right? Um, verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So this woman is trying to draw all kinds of attention to herself, and she's adorned in certain colors that I think are interesting to note, purple and scarlet. Now, <clears throat> what I believe that this apostate church represents oftentimes adorns itself in purple and scarlet as well. Is that the only identifier? No, it's not. But I think it's, uh, I could say ironic, but I think the Lord knew what he was talking about. But let's talk about colors for a second. 34 times in scripture, we have three colors mentioned together. Okay? So it's not just random, but they're mentioned together. And that is red, blue, and purple mentioned together in the Bible. Most of the time, you find it right there in Leviticus and in those places it's talking about the sanctuary. Over and over and over, you see those three colors, red, purple, and blue. Um, <clears throat> purple, well, what does that mean? Well, oftentimes purple is symbolic of royalty. It was a very difficult color to make, uh, to find the, the various dyes to, to do it. And uh, we have there in Judges 8, verse 26, it says, and purple robes which were on the kings. Okay, and so purple, that's one example, there's others, but purple in the scripture oftentimes symbolizes royalty, okay? Let's go back here and let's add scarlet. Well, scarlet is very much like red, very much like blood, and we have a lot of symbolism there. We, we could point to many texts. One that's very plain is here in Ephesians 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. And so oftentimes, scarlet, red, all of that symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. And even today, we, we think in those, along those lines. So we have one more color that is not mentioned in this harlot woman, by the way. It mentions the purple, royalty, and it mentions the blood, but that's it. Almost as if to say, all you need is the blood of Christ, and you are then royalty. Hang on to that thought for a minute. Let's look at blue, this other color that appears with these others so often. This one's in Numbers 5, 38 and 39. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassel of the corners. Why are we going to put a blue thread? We're talking down here in their robe, in their tassels. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember. What are they going to remember? Remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. In fact, uh, a pretty good case can be made that the Ten Commandments were actually hewn from, what was the, the rock? Sapphire, uh, which they believed to have a bluish tint to it. Right? Is that sapphire? I'm trying to remember. Okay. I haven't looked at that in a while. But they believe the Ten Commandments had a bluish tint. So it only makes sense. And so here you have, did I finish the verse? And that you may not follow the harlotry, that's kind of interesting to use that word, to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. And so this idea is that I want all of my steps to be within God's law. Isn't that, isn't that cool? I think that's a really neat symbolism. So as I walk around, I want all of my steps to be within the law of God. Okay, so every time I see blue, any time I see blue in the sanctuary, I'm thinking of the Ten Commandments, I'm thinking of God's law. So let's go back here. We have purple is royalty, scarlet is, is blood um, of Christ, and blue is the law. Who has ever mixed and played with colors? Do you have any painters in the room? Now, I'm, I can't call myself a painter, but I remember from the first grade or third grade or whenever it was, the primary colors. Do I have it right? Red, yellow, and blue. So if you mix certain colors together, and they have all these fancy charts, if you mix a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, then you get this, and so on and so forth. And all of the colors come from these three. I remember when I learned this, I thought, that's not true. <laughs> I'd mix my crayons, and it didn't quite work out for me. <clears throat> but it's true. So if you take a little red, and you mix in a little blue, what do you get? Purple. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, and maybe I'm taking too much time on this color business. Um, but I find it very interesting that this harlot, oh, this harlot has the red, and it says the blood of Christ is all you need for royalty. And in essence, it's kind of disregarding the blue. You don't see blue on this harlot anywhere. 
And I'm not trying to make a case for works. We don't earn anything, but we don't disregard God's law either. It's part of his character. It's part of who he is. So when you combine the character of God and how I want to take on his character, how I want all of my steps to be within the Ten Commandments to the best of of my ability and really the power that comes to me through Jesus Christ and his blood that covers me, those two meld together. And because of those two, royalty. Does that make sense? Um, To separate the blue is kind of like saying, I can claim the blood of Jesus Christ and do whatever I want. Have you ever met those kind of Christians? Yeah, I can do whatever I want to. It doesn't matter. And that's like telling your husband or your wife, uh, we got married. It's a done deal. I signed the paper. We sent them in. Now I can do whatever I want. So people get off on one ditch saying, well, you're trying to earn the fact that you're married. No, that's not how it works. Well, I'm just throwing out the law together and it doesn't matter. No, that's not how it works, right? And so hopefully you, you understand what I'm saying. But it's the red and blue together that equals royalty. Does that make sense? It's a little aside. I don't know. I find it interesting. So having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. The golden cup of wine in her hand represents the intoxication of false doctrine. Now, what makes false doctrine intoxicating? Have you ever wondered that? Well, itching ears tell me what I want to hear. Have you ever tried to, you know, you're in a situation where you're looking for advice and you don't do this intentionally necessarily, but if you're not careful, um, you always go to the person that will tell you what you want to hear. Have you noticed that? So if you want to take this job, you go talk to somebody who's a real ladder climber and you say, hey, what do you think? Knowing full well they're going to say what? Do it! And there's also somebody else that you could talk to that would say, oh, no, you don't want to do that. No, you don't. it's too many hours or whatever. You don't want to do that. And so we, if we're not careful, we can always pick the person that will tell us what we want to hear, right? And so I would, I would encourage you when you're making a big life choice, pray about it and say, Lord, who could tell me really from a, a good standpoint that's not going to be biased, that's going to tell me the truth in love, Either way, who should I go to as opposed to just getting the information that you want to hear? But these doctrines that can be intoxicating are the doctrines that tell us what we want to hear. A lot of people don't like to hear that they're accountable for how they live. Don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. I want to do whatever I want to do. Well, you you should eat this way and you shouldn't eat that way. Don't, 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 don't. That's what we do, right? I'm not listening. I'm not hearing this. And people can become intoxicated with their false ideas. Continuing on, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills. So here we have the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. So the seven heads are the seven hills. Now the the beast she's riding on is a nation or a power. Okay, so what area of the world or what city in the world, what power maybe could we be talking about that's built on seven hills? There's only one place in the world. Only one city in the world that meets this description, and that is Rome. So here you have a false system of worship. And again, these aren't my words, but I believe this is a fair interpretation of prophecy. If you want to delve deeper, pull me aside and we'll delve deeper. But here you have a power, Rome, which if we go back to Daniel 2, let's go back and pick up Daniel 2. We had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, and we've already seen uh, ten horns, all those kinds of things. So this is matching all those things that we've seen coming along. And so here we have this beast power that this woman or church is riding on. This power is Rome, and it has some false doctrine as part of its teachings. People are intoxicated with these false doctrines, right? Um, And it comes out of many waters or a large people group. So we have a lot of things happening here. Um, The fallen church system of Revelation 17 has colors of purple and scarlet, and she sits on a city with seven hills. And it says, on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Hmm. 
1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Interesting. So we are told and forewarned that these types of things will happen. You know, we used to think that the devil is always out there. But is it possible there are doctrines of devils in the church? I mean, is it the case that when we come into the church, the devil leaves us alone? Is it possible the devil has a work inside the church? I'm sure I could get testimonies from all of you. All of you have gone to a church and somebody said something that's not nice. It's insensitive. They were rude to me. They were all these things. Well, let me tell you, that's not going to change. And if you choose to join this church, we're going to try our best to be nice, but we're still human and you're probably still going to have a bad experience. I hope not, but you probably will. But we're here because of who? Jesus Christ. And we're all trying to do our very best by God's grace. I'm not trying to make excuses and tell you people should be treating you mean. Not at all. If I hear somebody treating somebody mean, I'll go talk to them. I will. I'll practice Matthew 18. I don't let that kind of stuff go because that really makes me upset. Jesus had righteous indignation, so, so can I, right? But at the end of the day, it's going to happen. And sometimes we have to have tougher skin um, because the devil is working, in fact, in the church. But here we're talking about a system that maybe the devil has a lot of control over in terms of uh, the doctrines and so forth. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I think this could almost be talking about our country too, talking about itching ears. We don't want to hear stuff that's going to condemn us. I mean, it's come to the point now where it's almost like there is no such thing as wrong. There's right for you and right for me and right for whoever. And don't, who are you to judge what's right for me? You can't tell me what's right and what's wrong. And, and, and they put up teachers that teach this kind of stuff all the time, all the time, all the time. Don't, don't step on my toes. Just make me feel good. Make me feel good. Make me feel, build me up. Build me up. Now we need to be built up. We need to be encouraged. But sometimes we need to have our toes stepped on too and say, oh, have mercy. Right? Anyway, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We need to be basing everything on God's word. That's the truth. I mean, there's, there's no weight to anything I say. Who cares what I say? But when God says something in his word, hey, I'm listening now. I need to pay attention now, right? So mystery, Babylon the Great. What is the literal meaning of the word Babylon and what is its origin? Uh, you might even notice the word babies in there, how babies babble and so forth. Well, it takes us back to, to Genesis after the flood. They didn't want to be destroyed by a worldwide flood again. And so they decided after some time went by, we're going to erect ourselves uh, this nice big tower. So if there's ever a flood again, we'll be safe. They call it the Tower of Babel, Babel or Babel, whichever. Genesis 11:9. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. I think oftentimes that's, in my opinion, that's where we get a lot of our language groups and so on. And of course, you have some variation and uh, whatever. But uh, in the midst of this construction project, the communication went south. Everybody started talking different languages. That'd be frustrating, wouldn't it? You get up here to the line, you ask, no peanuts, please. And then they douse it with peanuts. You know, <clears throat> can I have lemonade? And they give you something else instead. And on and on it goes. And that's just your food. Try and do everything else uh, on a construction pro project and you're really going to be in trouble. So Babylon literally means confusion. And so this woman here, in reference to Babylon, confusion. 
Daniel 4.30, the king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling? This is where Nebuchadnezzar is standing out there looking over his beautiful palace, which was very beautiful, one of the seven wonders of the world, and says, Look at what I have done. Look at what I have done. Never mind on the backs of how many million people, I don't know. Look what I have done. By my mighty power and by the honor of my majesty. So here we have another Babylon focusing on God, faithfulness to God. No, look what I've done. So Babylon's a man-made system of religion. It's man-made. It's man-centered. It's man-focused. It's me, 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 me. It's confusion. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Sometimes we view this verse as if the devil is storming God. It's actually quite the opposite. God is storming the devil, and the devil's not going to survive. That's what it's truly saying. Two systems of religion, a man-made one and a God-made uh, religion. Jesus is calling us from all human systems of religion to be faithful and true to his word. Amen? We want to be faithful to God's word. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may be the preeminence. So who's the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. Christ and Christ only. And his word that he's given to us, his beautiful word, should trump everything else. The true church of God is the only organization so big that its body is upon earth, but its head is in heaven. Somebody said that. I thought it was pretty clever. The only body so big that its body is upon earth, but its head is in heaven. So in the last days, a church-state system would arise called spiritual Babylon that would have a spiritual leader claiming to speak as God. Claiming to speak as God have the prerogative of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And we see a system of religion that is that way. Now let's pause here for a second. I don't want anybody to feel like I'm picking on anybody. I don't want to pick on anybody. I don't want to pick on any group. But I do want to be faithful to what Scripture has to say. And I don't think we're talking about a person or an individual. We're talking about a power, an organization. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so <clears throat> later this week, let me think, when is it? Friday night, I think, we're going to be talking about uh, the United States in Bible prophecy. Where do you live? United States. United States. <clears throat> There's some things about that that we'll have to say that uh, aren't so great. Actually, I'm not going to say them. I'm going to let the Bible say them. I'm too scared to say them myself, so I'll let the Word talk at that point in time. Does that mean all of us are terrible people? No. But it just simply means that we are part of a system that's going to do some things that are not the best. And there's a system, a religious system, that's doing things that are not biblical. Now, there can be some very committed people in that system. In fact, there are very committed people in that system. I know very committed people in that system. And I believe that the time will come that these true and faithful followers will see clearly and will choose to make a different choice. But they haven't had the opportunity yet, right? And we'll look at that tomorrow night when we look at the, the mark of the beast. <clears throat> so Babylon is a center of image worship as well. We had that throughout Babylon. Um, but who's really the... the the one that is a go-between, it's not uh, image worship, it's not a sun god, it's not anything else, it's Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. He's the one that's making intercession for us. We don't have to go to some other outside god or some outside you know, church leader or father or somebody from the past. We go through Christ. He's our intercessor and he's our high priest. So going to Exodus 20, chapter 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourselves the, the what, second commandment a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, that's a very relational word, isn't it? Jealousy can be a good thing. If your spouse is cheating with somebody else and you don't feel jealous, that's a problem. God says, I don't want you cheating with somebody else. I'm a jealous God. I want your full attention. I don't want you praying to this idol or that idol or this image or that image. And so he puts it right there in the Ten Commandments. Um, but we see this false organization as well. Many images uh, that they have changed. Instead of Jupiter, now it's St. Peter and all those kinds of things. Again, I don't mean to pick on any person. It's warm in here, so I'm going to do this. Try not to be offended. Just look to Jesus. I'm just a man. Okay. Does that make it so you can't see well? <clears throat> Babylon was the primal source. This is of uh, two Babylons. Dr. Alexander Hislop. Babylon was the primary source from which all these systems of idolatry flowed. Isn't that interesting? Babylon is also the center of false teachings about death. We see that throughout Babylon. False teachings about death. It was the concept of the Babylonians that the immortal soul left the body of death and lived on. That was just common in Babylon. So you have all of these, these things wrapped up in this symbolism. Um, and we see it in the spiritual Babylon as well. Therefore, the Babylonians established a system of gods and goddesses worshiping the spirits of those who supposedly lived on. Worshiping the spirits of those that supposedly lived on. And so you get all this kind of thing. And we talked the other night about how dangerous this is because this opens us up and makes us vulnerable, right? For the devil and his evil angels to communicate and do whatever he wants. We already have an in with this person. We already trust this person. This person is telling us good things, great things, quoting scripture, all these things. And is building trust, building rapport until eventually it can tell me whatever I want or whatever it wants to tell me. And I'll just follow along because it's grandma or whatever else. Or it's, you know, Mother Mary, or you get the idea. Ezekiel 8, 13 and 14, he said to me, turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. So this is in the Lord's house, the temple. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. So this is uh, another god, a false god. Tammuz was the god of the resurrection. And here you have women in God's temple weeping after this god of resurrection. They have, they have departed, haven't they? They have they've drifted away from what it says in God's word. And they've adopted these ideas of the culture and of paganism and all these things. And they brought it into the church. Baptized paganism was what we called the other night. Ecclesiastes 9.5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? Nothing. Nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Psalm 115.17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. You would think if this soul was immortal, of course it never says immortal soul, the only one that has immortality in scripture from front to back is God. And he comes at the second coming to give us immortality, right? Um, but you would think if someone did have immortality, the soul would continue to be praising God. Thank you so much for delivering me, for saving me, for bringing me up here, whatever it is. But it says, no, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. So the doctrine of immortal soul is not in the Bible. And we looked at that the other night. <clears throat> if you missed that, we have a study guide in the back and we have CDs at the back. Um, so I encourage you to pick that up. Is man by nature immortal? This is a sermon by Amos Phelps. He says, The doctrine can be traced through the muddy channels of corrupted Christianity, a perverted Judaism, a pagan philosophy, a superstitious idolatry to the great instigator of mischief in the Garden of Eden. You shall not surely die. The Protestants borrowed it from the Catholics, the Catholics from the Pharisees, the Pharisees from the pagans, and the pagans from the old serpent who first preached the doctrine amid the lowly bowels of paradise to an audience all too willing to hear and heed the new and fascinating theology. You shall not surely die. That's what itching ears want to hear. I don't like this idea of me dying. I like the idea of me being immortal. Can't die. Invincible. And so that was the, the lie that Eve bought into when she ate of the fruit. But this is when we receive immortality, is at Christ's second coming. 
Um, Antonician Fathers, Justin Martyr died at 165 AD, says this, if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this truth of the resurrection and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. Look at the date on that. He's saying, if you believe in an immortal soul, then you're not a Christian. It's not biblical. It's a pagan idea. And so we have to pay attention to those things. So it was the concept of the Babylonians that an immortal soul left the body at death and lived on. So you have all these things encompassed in this word, Babylon, right? All of these various things encompassed in that word. Therefore, the Babylonians established a system of gods and goddesses worshiping the spirits of those who supposedly lived on. Babylon was the center of sun worship. Ezekiel 8, 16. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. Here they are in the God's house again. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. Can you imagine this? Backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. They were worshiping the sun toward the east. Again, paganism in the temple of God, and they're worshiping the sun. They have the son of God, but they're worshiping the sun and the celestial planets and so on. So sun worship crept into the church. The Worship of Nature by James uh, Brazier. In ancient Babylonian, the sun was worshiped from immemorial antiquity. Immemorial antiquity, basically forever. Right? In ancient Babylon, the sun was always worshipped. This book here called Two Babylons um, by Alexander Hislop. It says, the consulate, To consolate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated, meaning bringing them together. And to get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in idolatry in this as in so many other things, to shake hands. And so you have this combination of paganism and the Bible. You have the Bible Sabbath, and the pagans are doing their thing on Sunday, and let's bring them together, and let's call Sunday something that we find in Scripture, which we don't. It's not there. It's integrated in. <clears throat> this is, is in our Sunday Visitor, January 4, 1931. Christendom is indebted to the Catholic Church for the institution of Sunday as the Sabbath day. Why is Christendom indebted to the Catholic Church? Well, it tells you. In keeping Sunday, non-Catholics are simply following the practice of the Catholic Church for 1,800 years, a tradition and not a Bible ordinance. So basically saying all of the Protestant churches still owe this idea of Sunday to the mother church, the Catholic church, because they changed it. There's no biblical authority. Well, how do they have the authority to do it? And they have statements, we've looked at those already, not tonight, but another night, that say, well, the proof's in the pudding, basically. That's a real paraphrase for you, but they said, how do we have the authority? Just look at everybody. Where, when are they going to church? Sunday. Any, any questions? Okay. <clears throat> this is a Baptist manual from 1893, the uh, ministry convention. It says, what a pity that it, Sunday, comes branded with the mark of paganism and christened with the name of the sun god, then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. What a shame, according to Dr. Edward uh, Hiscox, I think, however you say his name. Ezekiel 20, verse 12, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me. Keep this verse in mind. We're going to look at it again tomorrow night as we look at the mark of the beast and the sign of God. But I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me. that They might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So, when the Egyptians were worshiping the sun god, Moses was keeping the Bible Sabbath, right? When the Babylonians were worshiping the sun, Daniel was keeping the Bible Sabbath. 
When the Romans were worshiping the sun, Paul was keeping the Bible Sabbath. And today, when the world accepts pagan philosophy, philosophy, I believe God's going to have a group of people who will be keeping the Bible Sabbath. Why? Because it's the Bible Sabbath. It's the only one that we have spoken of in the Bible. Is there spoken in the Ten Commandments? Oh, it's for the Jews. No, it's all the way back to creation. And God instituted, oh, you guys are, are legalists at your workspace. No, I'm telling you to rest. And where do we find that? Right there in the creation account. They're not even a day old. And he says, I want you to rest. Enjoy each other. Enjoy a special time with me, all that kind of thing. God's telling us to rest, to rest. I tell you, this to me, this idea of the Sabbath is more relevant today than perhaps it's ever been. In a go, 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 hurry, 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 no stop, rush, rush, rush. I mean, now adults are getting into coloring. You've heard about this, right? You go to all these various places, even at Target and other places, and you can just find adult coloring books. What's the point of me picking up pencils or crayons or whatever I want to do? Usually it's pencils to color with. What's the point? To relax. I just all day long, you know, stress and go, go, go and looking at my phone all day. And I, I just need to sit down, take a few deep breaths and color. God has a day that you can color. It's called Sabbath. Turn it all off and just be done and just rest. Amen. You don't have to color. You can go out in nature. You can identify flowers or birds or, or <clears throat> take a nap or whatever, but just rest. That's what our planet needs. In fact, ironically, and we'll get into this more later. I should save this, I suppose. Um, but you have other people, very influential people on this planet saying that our planet needs to rest as well. Uh, just put that on the shelf. We'll come back to that. Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the un <coughs> unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath, so that I am not profane, so that I... I've hidden my eyes. I can't read. So that I, <coughs> I am profaned among them. Isn't that interesting? So we need to know the difference between the sacred and the, and the unsacred, the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy. And you have a whole generation now that really doesn't care about either one. <clears throat> or they like to mix the two together. As long as they're Jesus lyrics, I can sing it in any music bed I want to. And I can rock it out to any rhythm beat under the sun. I can just take this hard rock over here, this this screamo over here, and I can put great as I faithfulness words to it, and I'm up there on the front doing screamo, great as I faithfulness, and it's awesome. <laughs> I don't think so. Daniel 7.25 <clears throat> talks about how this same power will think to change times and laws. And we've already looked at that before. Uh, in Abiding Sabbath, George Eliot writes this, what is proposed to make an uh, erasure, thank you, in the heaven-born code? Let me read it as a question. What is proposed to make an erasure in the heaven-born code? That sounds better, right? Just edit that out on the CD. Is the eternal tablet of the law to be defaced by a creature's hand? Are we supposed to just go in there and meddle with the Ten Commandments? Take an eraser to it? Well, you really can't do that when it's in stone. He who proposes such an act should, be, should fortify himself by reasons as holy as God and as mighty as his power. Well, I got news for you. The person that's going around changing it is claiming all those things too. Right? <clears throat> the Catholic Mirror, Cardinal Gibbons, this is in 1893. He says, reasons and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives. Either... Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday. Why? Because it's the biblical Sabbath. Or uh, Catholicism, basically, and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. Basically saying, if you're going to be a true Protestant, go to church on Sabbath. 
Seventh day of the week. Otherwise, you're falling up underneath um, Catholicism. So here we come back to the pure woman and the adulterous woman. And the contrast between these two forms of worship, these two churches that we find, um, very much this great controversy back and forth. Revelation 18.2, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Now, we wouldn't have this verse if God didn't have his people in Babylon. Right? Which means, I believe, in all denominations, in all different groups and all the rest, in Babylon, in the false systems, he has his people that are faithful, that are, are living up to the light that they've been shown. And that's important, right? Even in Scripture, we have Jesus oftentimes upholding the Gentiles versus the Jews because the Gentiles are living up to all that they know. There oftentimes, I haven't seen greater faith in all of Israel. I haven't seen it over there, but I see it over here. Same idea. He says, my people, many of my people are still in Babylon, but he's calling them to do what? Come out. When you see clearly, when you're convicted, of what the Bible has to say on these topics, the call is to come out. To come out. Lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. Very sober text. Uh, again, this Bible commentary from Fawcett and Brown. The first justification of the woman is in her being called out of Babylon, the harlot, when judgment is about to fall for apostate Christendom, Babylon is not to be converted, but to be destroyed. So basically, Babylon is, is going down, is fallen. It's a sinking ship. And he says, I don't want you to go down with the ship, so I'm calling you to come out. The house is on fire. Come out. God's not going to put out the fire. He's not going to save Babylon in their sins. The ship's going down. He says, my people need to come out. <clears throat> Can't seem to read tonight, but anyway. What happened? Did I go back another way? In every apostate or world-conforming church, there are some of God's invisible and true church, and I believe that to be true, who, if they would be safe, must come out. And it's really not about joining another church. It's about being faithful to God's word. That's what it is. And if you were here Sabbath morning, I talked about why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and we've grabbed all these pearls and all these gems from all these other denominations and people, reformers, that have unwrapped these beautiful pearls of truth, if I can call them that. But then they stopped. They hung on to every other tradition, and then they have this beautiful pearl. Well, that's nice. But I want that pearl over there, and that pearl, and that pearl. I want all the pearls of truth, Right? And so if somebody else comes out with something else over there that's a pearl of truth, I want to be able to accept that. And so the reason I'm a Seventh-day Adventist is because I feel like all the pearls are, are close. I mean, all the truth that I find in Scripture lines up best in the Seventh-day Adventist church in any denomination I've found. If I find one that lines up better, I'm going there. I am. Now, I like how our church is set up because if you convince the whole church, then we'll just adopt that pearl and we'll keep cruising. That's part of our history, right? <clears throat> Revelation 18.4, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. So that's my call. But that's the call of Christ. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Now, maybe it's not a church. Maybe you're, you feel like you're in the, the, truth, the, the church that has all the truth. That's, that's great. But are there other ways that you're in spiritual Babylon? Are there other ways that you're compromising the truth that you know, the light that you've, been, that you've received? If so, God's calling you out as well. Come out of that junk. Come out of that garbage. Come out of that wasting of your time and your intellect and your gifts and all those things. Come out of all those things and be part of something bigger and better. Dear Heavenly Father, some people are saying they're ancient words. The Bible's not relevant. Who cares? I'm going to do whatever I want to. I'm going to believe according to my itching ears and I'd rather be intoxicated than to know the truth. Lord, that might be okay for a season, 
But it seems like following every intoxication is a time that the media doesn't show of hugging the toilet and feeling terrible and wondering what we did and why we did it and uh, filled with regret. Lord, in the biggest decision of our lives, we don't want to be at that place. We want to accept your invitation to come out of Babylon, come out of anything that is false, anything that is compromised, anything that's not biblical, uh, and to be faithful to you and your word only. And Lord, that can feel like a real tug-of-war on our hearts, and it can be a huge decision. But Lord, when we choose to surrender to that, it's just like this huge weight can fall off. When we finally say, you know, I don't know about anybody else, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to do what the Bible has to say. We're going to live for an audience of one. We're going to live for Christ only and what He calls us to do. Lord, the weight can then fall and we can trust You fully and we can know everything is well between our soul and our Savior and we can have a peace and an assurance that perhaps we've never had before. And Lord, that's what we want. And the big game of life, we don't want to come up short. We don't want to be a loser. We want to be on the winning side. We want to be standing with you. And so, Lord, if anybody here is on the fence tonight, I pray that in the quietness of their heart, they will simply pray a prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I want to be a follower. Give me the courage I need to step out in faith and follow you only. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.